So 1 Corinthians 7 is going to be, again, a mature topic. Just like last week, we're talking about sex. And so parents, if you have your kids with you, just so you know, we, we will not be graphic, but we will be direct as we talk about sex and divorce today. So if you need to exit with your kids, if they're not ready for that yet, you're welcome to do that. Um, so we're looking at, at Paul's discussion of sex and marriage and divorce But before we get to that, I need to let you know that Westboro Baptist Church, the group that has been protesting soldiers' funerals and that will be at Texas A&M tomorrow morning, they will be at our Anderson campus tonight. So they're going to have a demonstration this evening at the Anderson campus. We will end Awana early at 6 p.m. tonight so that all the kids are away from the campus before the protest begins. If you're not already planning on going up to Anderson, please don't. We don't want to add any more people. And if you were going up there already, we would ask you to just completely ignore the protesters. Don't talk to them. Don't look at them. Don't feed their desire for publicity. That's what they want. They want conflict. And so this is a classic biblical case of don't throw your pearls before swine. Just totally ignore them. Now, why is Westboro protesting Grace Bible Church? Well, it's because we do not agree with them that God hates homosexuals. No, he doesn't. God loves homosexuals. God loves all people. And Jesus died for all people. That includes those who are struggling with homosexuality. And so all people are welcome here at Grace Bible Church because we're all sinners. Some of us struggle with homosexual sin. Others of us struggle with heterosexual sin. But God loves sinners. And so all are welcome here. We hope that all will come to know Jesus and experience God's transforming grace in their lives. But this whole thing going on with Westboro Baptist Church, it's a good reminder to us that there is a very public, very contentious debate going on in our country over this issue of gay marriage. And as followers of Jesus Christ who who believe in the truth of every word of Scripture, we have very strong convictions about what marriage should be, that God designed it to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. But it's really easy for us to forget in the midst of all of this debate and all of these politics, it's easy for us to forget that the primary way that we explain and defend the biblical view of marriage is by having good marriages. That's the primary way we show the world the beauty of God's design of marriage is by having strong marriages. In fact, if our marriage isn't strong, it takes away the the power and conviction of our words. One of the primary arguments against the Christian view of marriage is that the world looks around and sees a lot of people who claim to be Christians who have really bad marriages. So if we're going to speak to this issue, we must have strong, biblical, God-honoring marriages. And that's what our passage is all about this morning. Paul is going to talk about how to make your marriage strong because there was a, a marriage crisis going on in the church in Corinth. Sex outside of marriage was on the rise. Divorce was on the rise. And so Paul, in our passage this morning, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, he is going to give us two pieces of practical advice, two practical steps to help us strengthen our marriages and make them healthy. 
These two pieces of advice are by no means an exhaustive list. Lots of marriage topics that Paul's not going to talk about this morning. He's not going to talk about communication or parenting or getting along with your in-laws or finances, any of those other subjects. He's going to be very focused this morning looking at two particular problems that the marriages in Corinth were dealing with and that many of our marriages are dealing with today. So he's going to give us two practical steps to strengthen our marriage. Now, many of you in this room are not yet married. You're singles, you're college students, and so you're wondering, why did I come this morning to a sermon on sex and divorce? Well, I I would encourage you, I I would assume that all of you want to be married one day, and if you would like to be married one day, you begin to build a a good marriage by starting long before your wedding day, by learning biblical principles about how to love your spouse. And so please don't tune out this morning. Next week, we'll come back to chapter 7, and it will be all about you. We'll be talking about God's view of the single life and the advantages in it. So next week is for you, but this week, please pay attention because this is really good stuff to learn so that you can get your marriage off to a great start. So let's talk about how do we strengthen our marriages? How do we build lifelong, committed marriages? Well, the two practical steps that Paul gives us, step number one to strengthen your marriage is you need to prioritize great sex in your marriage. Look with me, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The second part of that verse, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, it's a slogan. And slogans are dangerous things. They're often used to excuse bad behavior. So boys will be boys, you only live once, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Those are used all the time to excuse bad decisions that people make. But none of them are valid excuses. Just go lose your life savings in Vegas and then come tell your your spouse that you blew it. But hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. They're not going to buy that. That excuse doesn't work. It's a catchy slogan, but it doesn't work. Well, the Corinthians were guilty of using catchy slogans to try to excuse bad behavior. We saw that a lot last week in chapter 6. If you look back, chapter 6, look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That should be in quotes. That's a slogan. Verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. That's, again, it's a slogan. They're using those two slogans to justify sexual sin. And Paul didn't buy those excuses. He shot down both those slogans last week. This week, chapter 7, they're going to use another slogan to try to justify the exact opposite sin, practicing abstinence in marriage, not having sex with their spouse. That's what they're doing with that phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, meaning not to have sex with a woman. Now, we don't know the origin of this slogan. We don't know where it came from, but they're there were many Greek philosophers who believed this. They, they believed that the way to the spiritual life, the enlightened life, was to deny your physical desires, including your, your desire for sex. So you say no to sex and you become more spiritually fit. Now, it would appear that there are a number of married believers in Corinth who have bought into that idea. And so they assume if I no longer have sex with my spouse, it will make me more spiritual, more mature if I practice abstinence in my marriage. Paul doesn't agree with that. He shoots that idea down. Look with me, starting in verse 2. He says, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's two things that Paul teaches us here about sex in marriage. First thing that Paul wants us to understand is that in our marriages, we must make sex a regular part of our marriage. That's the the point that he lays out there in verse 2 when Paul says each man is to have his own wife. He's not talking about going and getting a wife, getting married. To have means to have sex with. Each husband is to have sex with his wife. Each wife is to have sex with her husband. That's to happen regularly. Verse 3, it's to happen regularly because it's an obligation that we owe one another. You are responsible. The husband is responsible to the wife. The wife is responsible to her husband. Obligation there or duty, it means a debt. That in love you owe one another. It's the husband's responsibility to fulfill his wife's sexual desires. It's the wife's responsibility to fulfill her husband's sexual desires. And let's just be clear for a second. What that means is that contrary to how our society views sex in marriage, in a Christian marriage, sex should never be used for blackmail or as a bargaining chip or as a reward. That's often what you'll see on TV, in movies, in culture, about how sex works in marriage. One spouse withholds sex from the other to try to get what they want or to try to punish their spouse. Or you give sex as a reward if your spouse does something nice for you. That's never okay. Sex isn't a bargaining chip. It's an expression of, of loving commitment to one another. And so we have this obligation in marriage to to give sex to our spouse. So that's what Paul says in verse 13. In verse 15, he says we should fulfill that obligation often, frequently. should be a regular part of marriage. You should not abstain for long periods of time except by mutual agreement. Sex should be something that's, that's regular. And Paul tells us why in both verse 12 and verse 15. He says the reason that that sex should be a regular part of marriage is because it protects us from temptation. It's God's gift to married couples to to protect us from sexual temptation. There's a lot of marriages in in America where, where pornography or adultery enter the marriage because one spouse is withholding sex from the other and that opens the door to loneliness and to temptation. And so one of the gifts that you give one another in marriage is you help each other fight temptation by by having sex regularly. Now, there's a couple really important caveats that that I have to give as we talk about this subject. First is lack of sex never excuses sexual sin. Okay, so when God gave the command, do not commit adultery, he did not add the catch unless your wife is holding out on you. No, it's, it's never okay. To commit adultery. Sexual sin is never excusable. You don't have to have sex with your spouse to fight sexual sin. Just ask all your single friends. They're fighting sexual sin all the time without having sex with a spouse. Okay, so lack of sex in marriage never excuses sexual sin. That's the first caveat. Second caveat is the Bible does not specify an ideal frequency of sex in marriage. There's no magic number. There's no average given in the Bible for how often a married couple should have sex. It's going to be different for different couples. It's going to be different at different stages and times of life. During pregnancy, when the children are young, during travel, there's not going to be a lot of opportunity for sex. So there's no magic number. There's no average that you're aiming for that the Bible gives. 
So I want to give you a, a few practical principles to help you and your spouse arrive at a frequency of intimacy that, that you both enjoy, that works for both of you. So a few practical steps. Number one, talk about your expectations. We all enter into our marriage with expectations. Some express, some not. And when those expectations are not met, it can lead to anger and frustration that can turn into bitterness if you don't talk it through. You got to talk openly with your spouse about what do you both desire? How frequent do you want sex to be in your marriage? What's too frequent? What's not frequent enough? You need to have that conversation. If you've been married for a while and you haven't talked about that, you need to go talk about that today. That's really important to talk with one another openly about your desires and expectations about how often you're going to have intimacy with one another. Second principle I give you is that you're going to need to expect to make a compromise. Chances are very, very good that your sex drive is not identical to your spouse. And that's actually a good thing. Tommy Nelson is fond of saying that uh, if, if a man's sex drive was equal to a woman's, then we would have an incredibly productive society that was very, very small. And if a woman's sex drive was equal to a man's sex drive, then we would still be back in the Stone Age, but there'd be a gazillion of us. Our sex drives are different, and that's good. And we need to expect to come to a compromise as we try to figure out how often to have sex within marriage. So guys, it's probably going to mean that we're going to need to accept and be content with having sex less often than we might like. Because guys, for many of us, we would have sex until we lost our jobs and the kids starved. We want it all the time. And so we're going to have to be okay with getting it less frequently than we would otherwise desire. Now, women, for, for a lot of you wives, you're going to need to compromise by giving more attention than, to sex than you otherwise would. Now, that's not always true. Some marriages are flipped. What's always true in every marriage is that both partners are going to have to compromise. You're going to have to aim for something in between, more frequent than one of you wants, less frequent than the other wants. You need to expect to make a compromise in your marriage. Third principle I give you is you need to not let other good things crowd out intimacy. So you've, you've talked about it, you've arrived at, at a compromise, you feel like a, a good frequency that you're aiming for, but then stuff comes up at work or in the community, or you have kids and you're running around and kids' events are trumping your intimacy over and over again. You gotta cancel again because you have a soccer game. I just want to remind you really clearly, no child's soccer game will ever be as important as having sex with your spouse. You must not let sex get trumped over and over again by the things that your kids are doing. Sex and marriage is an incredibly important priority. My kids don't even play soccer. I don't want to give up the time with Julie. <laughs> sex and marriage is incredibly important. You need to make it a priority and don't let other things crowd it out. Now, one final thing that I want to tell you about having regular sex and marriage there's a lot of couples that are not having regular pleasurable sex with each other because there's a medical or emotional problem. That's very, very common in couples. And so I want to encourage you, if there's something that is keeping you from being able to regularly enjoy intimacy with your spouse, please get help. Please talk to a doctor or a counselor. There are so, there's like 40 million marriages in America that are sexless for one reason or another. Sometimes that can't be fixed, but a lot of times it can. If you'll just go get help, please talk to a doctor or a counselor and get help because God doesn't want you to just accept a sexless marriage if something can be done about it. He wants you to enjoy intimacy with your spouse. 
Okay, so make sex a priority by making time for it, making it a regular part of your married life. Second principle that Paul gives us about sex and marriage, not only should it be a regular part of our marriages, but it should be a satisfying part of our marriages. I, I really don't like going to the grocery store because every time I go to the grocery store, I'll get my, my eggs and my milk and my yogurt and, and my uh, frozen pizza, and I will take all of them and go to the checkout line where all of a sudden I'll look up and see all these magazines with scantily clad women and articles about nine tips to, to better sex. And that always makes me feel awkward because I'm just trying to buy my groceries, but now I'm worried that one of you is going to come up behind me. And if I'm facing in the general direction of one of those magazines, maybe you'll think I'm looking at that woman or wondering about that article. So I just end up looking at my shoes or the ceiling the whole time that I'm in the checkout line. I really don't like that. I don't want that in my grocery experience. But why are those magazines so popular? Why are there rows and rows of them at HEB? Because they are tapping into something that everyone wants, to be better in bed. We, we all want that. We want to be better at sex. And if you're married, you need to understand that is not an immoral desire. God wants you as a married Christian to grow to be great at sex with your spouse. He wants you to become better in bed. That's a good thing. Because God wants sex to be satisfying in our marriages. Remember, it's designed to protect us from temptation, but it won't unless it's satisfying. God wants it to be joyous and exciting and thrilling. Just look at the Old Testament. Look at the book of Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Love there is talking about sexual, erotic love. The husband is to be exhilarated and satisfied in his wife. It's not just true for husbands. Here's about wives. Song of Solomon 1, 16 and 2, 6. Oh, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how delightful you are. His left hand caresses my head and his right hand embraces me. This is the wife speaking. And if you want a fascinating word study, look up the word embraces because it doesn't mean hug. She's having a really good time. Because God designed sex to be satisfying and joyous and exhilarating in marriage. And so how do you learn to have exhilarating sex with your spouse? How do you become great in bed? Well, Paul gives us the secret to great sex in verse 4. Look at verse 4. The secret to better sex. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, a rabbit trail for just a second. Just so you know, that there is no example in all of ancient literature of a woman being given equal authority as a man over a body. The husband having authority over the wife, that's common. But the wife having equal authority over the husband's body, absolutely unprecedented. So you, there's this lie in common culture that the Bible is chauvinistic. No, it's not. It's not against women. This is actually one of the most radical feminist documents that's ever been written. Because God gives honor and respect to women unlike any other ancient document you will find anywhere. Okay, so God has a very high view of women. I just wanted you to know that. Now let's get back to sex. The secret... To great sex, Paul tells us in verse 4, is selflessness. 
It's selflessness. It's giving yourself to your spouse, body, mind, and soul. Now, that's opposite of how our world thinks about sex. In our world, sex is all about taking. It's about getting what I want, the pleasure, the satisfaction that I want from you. I'll do whatever it takes to make sure I get what I want. But that's, that's the way to bad sex. That's not the way to good sex. Good sex comes through giving through selflessness, through sacrificing yourself for your spouse, focusing on their needs and desires, serving them. That's the secret to great sex. Paul talks about that in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And the passage doesn't look at first glance like it has anything to do with sex, but it actually does. Best sex advice you will find written anywhere. Paul's telling you the way to great relationships, the way to a great marriage is through service. It's through selflessness. It's through taking your eyes off of what you want, your pleasures, your desires, and focusing completely on your spouse. If you both will do that, it will build an incredibly great marriage. You'll be having incredibly great sex. If you will follow Paul's advice in Philippians 2 and be selfless, focus on the needs and desires of your spouse. Give your body, mind, and soul to them to satisfy them, and sex will be great. So let me give you a couple practical steps as you think about how to be, a, 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 how to be great at sex with your spouse, how to serve them selflessly. The first thing that I would encourage you to do is to become a student of your spouse, Learn what satisfies your spouse. Learn what pleases them. Discover what they like, what they don't like. Learn how to, how to really love them well intimately. Okay? And remember, intimacy, it begins way before you actually get into bed. So find out what it takes all day long to be loving and growing and, and blessing your spouse. You learn what your spouse likes and then become really good at it. Practice a lot. It's the best studying you will ever do. Practice with your spouse how to have great sex. Be a student of your spouse and learn how to thrill them in bed. That's what it means to to have great sex is that you focus on your spouse, how to love them, serve them, and be selfless to them. So become a student of your spouse. I'll give you some resources in a minute that will help you as you learn how to be great in bed. Uh, Second, talk openly together about sex. This is not a comfortable topic that we like to talk. I'm, I'm sweating like crazy up here. (laughs) It's not fun to talk with you about this publicly. For most of us, it's not fun to even talk about privately. We don't really know how to talk about this, and so we don't. And the problem with that is that when you do not talk about your desires and expectations, it will end up leading to disappointment and frustration and loneliness and bitterness, and you don't want to go there. So you must get good at talking openly with your spouse about sex. There's nothing off the table, nothing you can't say to your spouse. You need to talk openly and regularly about what do you like, what do you not like, what are you comfortable with, what are you not comfortable with. You need to have an open and running dialogue about intimacy with your spouse. Communication is key to great sex and marriage, and so talk about it openly and frequently. As we look at this topic of sex, what I hope that you're getting a sense of is that as followers of Jesus Christ, if we're married, we should be having the greatest sex on the planet earth. Because we know the guy who invented sex, and we have his manual right here, and we're following him. And so we ought to have the best sex lives of anybody, and you can if you will apply Paul's principles and make sexual intimacy a regular and satisfying part of your marriage. 
Now, let me give you a few resources that have helped me and helped a lot of other people to, to grow our intimacy in marriage. Some, some things that you could look at. First, Song of Songs is, is a series that the college ministry is doing this fall. They're actually preaching it right now. So it's all about sex at Grace Bible Church today. All of those sermons and notes are on the website. So you can go there, look at Song of Songs series, and you'll get lots of good instruction from the book of the Song of Solomon. Second, Tommy Nelson's book, The Book of Romance, What Solomon Says About Love, Sex, and Intimacy. Great series on sexual intimacy. Third, Intimacy Ignited by Joseph and Linda Dillow. Really good husband and wife team. Very good writers. Very useful information. Uh, Fourth, Intimate Issues, 21 Questions Christian Women Ask About Sex by Linda Dillow. One of the best books, actually, that's out there on the topic of intimacy, particularly for women to read. Really, really good book. I highly encourage that one. And finally, Intended for Pleasure by Ed and Gay Weed. It's, it's thick. It's kind of a classic. Um, really, really useful, though, especially during pre-marriage as you're getting ready uh, to be married. So I would encourage you to pick up one of those books with your spouse. Read it. Maybe if you've been married for a long time, get one of those books and read it, and you'll find that it'll open up new discussions that, that you would have not otherwise had. Okay, so be reading these books. Be investing time in making your sex life better and better. God wants you to have satisfying sex. He wants it to be a great part of your married life together. So that's the first step that Paul has for us. As we think about how to strengthen our marriages, we need to prioritize great sex. The second step that Paul has for us in this passage is that we need to recommit for life. Now, as if sex wasn't an uncomfortable topic enough for us this morning, Paul follows the discussion of sex with the discussion of divorce. That's another really uncomfortable topic. It's uncomfortable for a lot of us because we've felt the pain of divorce. We've seen it. We've, we've seen the destruction that it does. We've seen how it tears families apart, how it causes scars, how it's painful. I read about a Cambodian couple who was married for 18 years and then they got a divorce and they took that whole part about dividing assets very literally. The husband went and got a saw and cut their house in half and left half for his wife and took his other half to his parents' property and moved in there. So their home was literally divided by divorce. Now that's, that's always true. It may not be literally true, but it's always figuratively true. The divorce tears apart families. It causes pain and destruction for everyone involved. But that fact that the divorce causes pain, that was not keeping the Corinthian believers from pursuing divorce. They began to look at divorce as an option in their life. Look with me, starting in verse 10. Paul says, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. As best we can tell, what's going on is that some Corinthian believers are taking, remember, they they had this false idea that celibacy was more holy than having sex, and so they were abstaining from sex and marriage. Well, some of them took it even further and said, well, let's be really holy, let's get a divorce. We're not even living together anymore. And so they thought that that would make them more holy. Paul says, no, that's absolutely not true. And so Paul is going to give some commands. And the first command that he gives is actually not his. It comes from Jesus. When he says, not I, but the Lord, he's telling you, he's about to quote Jesus' teachings in the gospel. And Jesus taught very clearly that Christians must not divorce one another. Now, for those of you who've studied Jesus' teaching, you know Jesus does give an exception in the case of adultery. Paul doesn't mention that because that's not in the context. 
They're not getting a divorce because of adultery. They're getting a divorce because they want to live a celibate life. And Paul says that's never okay. You can't divorce your spouse just because you think it'll make you more holy. That's ridiculous. Okay, so that's the first situation that Paul looks at, but it raises a question. What if your spouse is not a believer? What if your spouse isn't uh, a believer, is not walking with the Lord? Look with me, verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you not know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you not know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, so... Paul gives his own instruction here. You notice in verse 12, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. That's not code for he's just giving you an opinion. He's just going beyond what Jesus addressed in the Gospels. Jesus never dealt with this situation. So Paul is giving you new revelation. And there's a couple things that he tells us. The first is, is that as Christians, we should not initiate a divorce with a non-believing spouse. Shouldn't initiate a divorce. Now, the reason that these Christians were considering divorcing their non-believing spouses, you can tell from the clean versus sanctified language, they were afraid that their unbelieving spouse would defile them. And, and very literally, what happened in Corinth is if you were not a believer, you probably were an idolater. You had idols in the home. You, you brought idolatry into the home. And so these Christian people are worried that their unbelieving idolatrous spouse is going to bring uncleanness and, and defilement into the home. So they think, well, should I divorce them and get that idolatry out of the house? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. The fact that your spouse said no to the gospel does not annul your vows. It does not remove the one flesh relationship that you have. Your marriage is still ongoing. It's still valid. So he tells them to stick together. But then he gives them some really good news. Actually, defilement isn't going to flow from your spouse to you. Actually, the exact opposite. Holiness is going to go from you to them. You are going to sanctify them, set them apart from the world, bless them with God's grace and truth. So stay together because you can be a conduit of salvation to them. That's the point of verse 16. You could be the, the agent of salvation in their lives. So they're not defiling you. you. You are bringing holiness to them just like you bring holiness to your children. That's the point of the children being sanctified. That believer in that family is a source of God's grace and blessing, both to the unbelieving spouse and to the children. So as Christians, we should not initiate divorce with an unbelieving spouse. But then Paul says, if that unbelieving spouse divorces you, well, you are free to remarry. That's what I'm taking verse 15 to be saying when it says that that the person is not under bondage. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't have to go to court to get a divorce. You just left. The moment you left the house and said, I'm done with this marriage, marriage was over, divorce was final. But if you were a woman in the ancient world and your husband left you, that would leave you very vulnerable because there were no jobs for you. There's no way for you to earn a living, to have food, unless you got remarried. And so Paul is giving permission, he's giving freedom. If your unbelieving spouse leaves you, you are free to marry another. Okay, so that's the situation that Paul deals with. It's very limited scope of divorce and remarriage that Paul is looking at in chapter 7. But it always raises bigger questions. People read this passage and they wonder, so when is divorce permissible and when is it not? When is remarriage permissible and when is it not? What do I do if I'm already divorced? 
I, I can't deal with that this morning. That's an incredibly complex topic. It takes a long time to explain. And so what we've done is we've taken the sermons that Brian and I preached a couple years ago on divorce and remarriage, and we put them on the homepage, grace-bible.org. If you look under recent resources, you'll see my sermon. It's called Divorce and Remarriage. It's a really easy title. Just go to that, and I walk you through all the biblical evidence and all the guidelines about when divorce and remarriage is permissible, when it's not, why, and what to do if you're already divorced. I go through all those details. So please check that out. I, I can't deal with that this morning. I really don't want to deal with that in this passage because that's not the most important question to ask. We really shouldn't be asking, when is divorce permissible? The much better question to ask is, what can I do to make sure that divorce is never an issue for my marriage? What can I do today to strengthen my marriage so that divorce is never something we're even thinking about? And so I want to give you just five quick practical steps to strengthen your marriage so that the divorce is never something that you have to think about. Okay, so step number one, strengthen your marriage. Go back to everything I've been saying. Apply step number one, have sex with your spouse. Make it regular, make it satisfying. You would be shocked to see how many marriages dissolve because of sexual issues. They're withholding from one another. They're not having a satisfying sex life that opens the door to frustration and loneliness and temptation and sets somebody up for an affair. Okay, so apply step number one. Make sex a priority in your marriage. Step number two, take the word divorce off the table. In a marriage, if you've been married for a while, you know that arguments are unavoidable. You are going to have arguments. You're going to get angry with one another. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to go through periods of time where you feel distance from each other. In the midst of those hard times, the worst thing you can do is to speak the word divorce to one another. The D word, it's like putting a nuclear bomb right in the middle of your marriage. Because now you've just undermined security. Now your spouse is wondering, is he really going to leave me? Is she really done with this marriage? Are we over so never use words or phrases or threats that causes your spouse to wonder whether or not your marriage is going to survive. Just don't go there. Use words and phrases that remind them that you're committed to this, that you're going to do whatever it takes to make your marriage work. doesn't matter how bad the fight is. Julie and I will never use words like divorce. Just don't take it right off the table. Never an option to even use the word. That's my second piece of advice for you. Third, surround yourself with good marriages. When you get married, you, you have a choice about who you choose to be friends with. What other couples are you going to spend time with? What you'll find is that over the years, whatever couples you hang out with, their habits will carry into your marriage. You will learn patterns from them. So please do not spend time with couples who pick at each other. With couples who are sarcastic, who are passive-aggressive, who are mean, who belittle each other, cut them out of your life. You do not need to spend time with them. That's not being mean. That's protecting your marriage. Spend time with couples that encourage one another, that serve one another, that bless one another. I cannot overstate how important that is to the health of your marriage. Surround your marriage with couples, with marriages that are strong and godly and biblical. That will protect you from your marriage picking up those bad habits. It's my third piece of advice. Fourth piece of advice, learn how to communicate with one another. Almost every divorce flows out of some bad habit of communication. Okay, so something was going wrong, finances or sex or in-laws or something, and the couple could not communicate effectively about that problem. That ends up leading them to a divorce. 
If you can learn to communicate well with one another, you can deal with almost any problem, any difficulty. And so I want to recommend to you, if you've been here for a while, you've seen me recommend this before. This is the best book ever written on the subject of marriage other than the Bible, in my opinion. A Lasting Promise, A Christian Guide to Fighting for Your Marriage by Stanley, Trathan, McCain, and Brian. I cannot recommend this too highly. It has saved countless marriages. It can save your marriage. It helps you identify your bad habits in communication and deal with them and fix them. Most helpful book I have ever read in my life other than the Bible. If you're single, if you're not yet married, I still encourage you to pick up that book. If you can learn to recognize and deal with your bad habits of communication, you won't bring them into your marriage. You will save yourself an incredible amount of pain. So get this book, learn how to communicate well with each other. That's my fourth piece of advice. Fifth piece of advice is to date your spouse. Here's how most marriages work. Before you're marriage, married, you, you go on dates all the time. Like all the time, every possible night you're out on a date with your spouse. Then you get married and the frequency of dates decreases because life begins to get busy. And then the t- kids come along and the frequency of dates is just, it's on the floor. You're hardly ever getting to go out. And some marriages, it ceases altogether. And that's not good. Because your marriage is your most important relationship in life other than your relationship with God. It trumps your relationship with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings. More important than any of those relationships is your marriage relationship. And you must give it time. It cannot grow if you don't give it time. So date your spouse for the rest of your life. You're never done dating your spouse. Give your spouse time. Give them energy. Give them attention. Now, if you haven't been on a date with your spouse in a while, I've got good news for you. We have a date for you. Our annual Grace on a Date is coming up November 21st. We will take care of your kids so that you can go have a date. We've got free child care, zero to sixth grade. We will feed your kids pizza. We will get them hopped up on soda so that you can go out and go to a movie, go to dinner, or if you've not had sex for a long time, just go home, have that time together. We'll watch your kids. But we do need you to sign up ahead of time. We've got limited space. So please go to the website, register today for Grace on a Date. We'd love to have you take advantage of this opportunity to take your spouse out on a date. Okay, as you look at this subject of marriage, what I hope that you are understanding, again, your marriage as a Christian is the second most important relationship of your life, only trumped by your relationship with God. Trumps your relationship with your kids, your parents, your siblings, everyone else. Incredibly important. In fact, your marriage becomes the the vehicle through which you glorify God on this planet. It's how you demonstrate his love, his faithfulness, the beauty of Jesus to the world. It's through your marriage. So you got to give it attention. you got to give it time. you got to build your marriage. And so I want to encourage you this week. Do whatever it takes to strengthen your marriage. Make sex a a priority in your marriage. Reaffirm your commitment to one another. Do whatever it takes. And and to be really frank, what I want you guys to do today is to talk with one another. If you're married, set aside some time today while these thoughts are fresh in your mind to have an open and frank discussion about what we've talked about. If you delay, if you wait because you get busy, well, these are never really comfortable topics to discuss, so it's going to get put on the back burner. It's never going to happen. And so I want to challenge you today, while it's fresh in your mind, sit down with your spouse and ask, how is our marriage doing? How is our sex life? Do we need to work on it? Is it not going as you hoped? Is it going better than you hoped? What do we need to work on there? How is our commitment to one another? Do you, do you feel that, this, that our marriage is growing, that it's strong? Where do you think the challenges and threats are to our marriage? 
Please spend time with your spouse today talking about your marriage. Do whatever it takes to make your marriage strong and vibrant and lifelong. I've shared a lot of resources this morning. If you'd like those resources later this week, I'll post them on Twitter and Facebook and on our website so you can get them all there. Get one of these books, listen to one of these sermons, spend time with your spouse talking about how you can strengthen and build your marriage. No marriage is ever beyond hope of God's healing. So let's spend time, let's invest the effort to build strong marriages that glorify Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For the gift of marriage, we thank you that you looked at the human race. You looked at Adam when he was alone and you said this is not good. And so you gave us the gift of marriage and we praise you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to be one flesh with another person for the rest of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of marriage. We pray for those in this room who have not yet received that gift. We pray that they would walk with you, that they would find contentment and joy in Jesus Christ. We pray that they would grow to be, to be completely satisfied in him. We pray, Lord, also for those in this room who have a marriage that's, that's not going well right now, Lord. A marriage that's on the rocks, that is struggling. We pray that you would help them to believe that you are with them. We pray that you'd help them to believe that their marriage is not beyond hope. We pray that you would heal their marriage, that you would bless them, that your grace would come into their lives and and, and just completely redeem their marriage. We pray for those whose marriages are going well. We pray that you would protect those marriages from the evil one. We pray that they would not take their spouse for granted that they would not let the kids or the career or friends or uh, responsibilities trump their commitment to their spouse. We pray, Lord, help us to love our spouse as well. Protect our marriages from the evil one. Help us to love one another deeply. We pray that the marriages here in Grace Bible Church would glorify you. We pray that they would show to the world our commitment and our love to one another and that you would be pleased in us. Please be with us, Lord. Grow us so that we can walk with you, all for the glory and renown of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. And I'll see you guys next week back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7.